Welcome back to the Christ in Culture. This is Gordon. And this is Clint. And this is my first time on the podcast. Ever. Ever. That's not true. You've been around for like two years, dude. I know. And this is your first time on the podcast as, as two a people. married man. We still need to figure that out. I don't think that's... You know what? Say what you want. I don't... I'm done. <laughs> two souls. One body. Uh... Yeah. So Gordon's married. That was fun. Like Your wedding was absolutely yeah. awesome. It was good stuff. Lots of dancing. I can't believe, I don't know if you ever figured this out, but at the reception, the bad lip reading. Oh, yeah. Do you know who? I do. We were actually right next to her when that was requested, when it got played. Wait, her? Yeah. There's a bunch of people that claimed they requested that. But okay. Dang it. I know who actually requested it. Who was it? Um, it was Hawk's girlfriend. Well, now I feel stupid. <laughs> yeah, I heard afterwards, Liz is like, three people claimed that was theirs. Yeah. What if, what if there really were like five people that requested it? Well, I saw all the RSVPs. So unless someone actually requested that at that night, oh. which I find highly unlikely. Gotcha. Yeah, and that, that's pretty random. So to clarify what we're talking about here at the reception gordon and lizzie made it open to whatever songs were requested no matter how crazy or stupid they would be played and someone requested the yoda bad lip reading yeah seagulls song if you don't know what we're talking about look it up yeah it's, it's from the last goofy. jedi and they just made a new one actually no not the last jedi the return of the jedi the last jedi is from the new oh trilogy. yeah that's right they just made a new one from the last jedi yeah something about walking on a beach right <laughs> something like that but it was funny because she answered all the rcp questions with youtube videos as like jokes she was just like rick rolling us mm -hmm. and um i was like all right she requested this song it's going in there it's and happening. then i was going through the list right before we sent to abraham and lizzie's like i was like where's this song she's like i didn't put it on there i thought it was a i didn't think that would make sense i was like no no it's it gotta needs go to be on, on there. there yeah I think I was the only one dancing to it. I saw some people. I was I wanted to, but I was in the back talking talking to her and other people. Right. But yeah, I saw some people sort of dancing to it. A lot of people were like, "What? What is what this?" Is this? <laughs> All the old people have no idea what it is. <laughs> Anyways, you went on your honeymoon, and part of that was going to Nashville. Was that your first no. time? Was that Lizzie's first time? It was Lizzie's first okay. time to Nashville. Part of it was in Nashville. Most of it was in right. Asheville. Asheville, and Nashville. Not to be confused. No. Two different states. Right. First time in Asheville. I've been to Nashville many a times, actually. What's in Asheville? I don't know anything about it. Not a lot. Major landmarks would be the Biltmore, which is a house very similar to, like, Downton Abbey. Oh. One of, like, this rich dude who moved out during, like, the colony time. No, it was like he built this house. It was one of the times when, like, your home was kind of your heirloom to your family. So right. he built this giant house, yeah. had a lot of money. I forgot from what. And then he built the the land that he bought was not only like massive and like just like Downton Abbey with hunting and, and like has a vineyard on there now too and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. He loved wine, but it was actually built. So every tree, the streams, the rocks that like the streams would flow over were particularly placed to create like a beautiful landscape. Interesting. Yeah, it was fascinating. It was really cool. That actually reminds me of... I studied for like a month in China and we got to go to the city of Suzhou, which is famous for their, their gardens, like the Chinese gardens. And they build like these elaborate 
gardens with a combination of rock and water, a special rock from one place in China. And everyone is different and it's supposed to be a unique like flow of water and earth kind of like you said where they bring this earth into the place and shape the waterfalls and, and everything exactly and that's where yeah. you get like the weird like round doors and stuff yeah you see? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that's all the chinese garden so i gotta like study that kind of stuff for a yeah. while it was, pretty it, was cool. it was very much like that as well as like he had one of the first indoor bowling alleys oh so this is more recent how old yeah. is bowling is bowling an old sport no but he probably had it in his house before like the white house did is wow. what i'm saying so the house was built like 1900s maybe okay. maybe late 1800s man i was still thinking like 1700s like this thing was around during the civil war and the revolutionary war uh not that I, I don't know it's sad i should know the stuff i went but all right another really cool thing they have a hotel that was built like early 1900s as well it's a omni hotel which is a popular chain but it looks like a hobbit house oh but like massive okay. like 15 or more stories but like the it's very all brick and old and then it has that like the roofing of like a hobbit house like grass yeah but almost like rounded yeah. so like it looks it's 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 rectangular but the, all the corners are round and it looks very round and interesting it was really cool. That's yeah. really strange. Okay. Um, and then other than that, other than like a few things, it just has good food, like really like a lot of $3 sign, $4 stein restaurants and uh, has the most breweries per capita. So Ah, that explains it. Yeah. There you go. There, there we go. <laughs> so speaking of your honeymoon though, because you were gone, you took kind of a late start to Exodus 90. I did. And you actually took in some media. I did. What did you take in? We completely watched in our reality house, which was like a cabin that had like no TV. So you're almost, you know, kind of step away from reality. So we very quickly latched on to Disney Plus <laughs> and binged. Wait, so you guys caved. You're so anti-Disney. Uh, it's not our Disney Plus. Oh, okay. But it is a legal Disney Plus. And we oh. watched The Mandalorian. And it was fun. It was fun. Yeah. Very high paced. Yeah. You've seen you've seen Firefly? Yeah. Okay, so it's Doctor Who and Firefly as a Star Wars show. Kinda, yeah. Like essentially I understand because I know we talked about it once. It's like a space western. Yes, but we talked about like with the idea that there was no like plot. Mm hmm But that's because people were looking for like a hook that continued through. And just like Doctor Who and just like Firefly, each episode was its own. Yeah. And I was like, okay, this is the adventure of this episode. And like once you're like, oh, this is this is what they made. That's when you're like, okay, I can just I can just accept. Yeah, Firefly especially was kind of wacky because they released the episodes right. out of order. So right. even if there were a running story through the whole thing, no one Which there would was. have known. Yeah, it it was it, it was, became more apparent later right. on. It was the same way with this one where like the underlying story was into like a baby Yoda story. But other than that, Firefly was like people that joined their crew that yeah. you were like yeah. mystery background. That was it. But other than that, every episode was like, okay, we got this heist. Okay, now this heist. Now this heist. And they were all disconnected. So uh, except was, for the, the doctor. It was fun. I think it was a little overhyped. I haven't come in so late. I agree. For what it was. Even 
I watched it as it came out, and I think it was overhyped too. But it's the only good thing on Disney Plus. Oh no way! I mean, that's out of new the box. to me. I told Lizzie, I'm like, there's, I'm glad we didn't like we're not paying for this because besides the Marvel movies and besides what else, there's something else out of the box. Anyways, besides the Marvel <laughs> movies, really, dude, there's so much good stuff on Disney Plus. No, there's not. Ah. I don't hold on. Did you watch Disney Channel growing up? Yeah. What? Then how can you not be excited? They have all the Disney originals. It takes something special for me to rewatch it. Okay, that's fair. And the directors and type of movies I like are not on Disney Plus. That's true. That's very true. I understand your statement now. (laughs) If I have kids one day, Disney Plus is fantastic. Yeah. Because it's something I can show them, and I don't mind watching it, too. Yeah. But right now, like, for my own free will. Yeah, you have a, a much more sophisticated taste in in cinema. It's maybe pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. I think you actually care about the, not just the story, but the how the, the movie's done. And a lot I of... I mean, Disney, Disney is great. They make fantastic stuff. It's just I've seen most of it. That's it. So other than that... Uh, we also binged The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay. Which is an Amazon Prime original show. And it is a woman. It's all about like the 1950s, 1960s, and eventually 1970s. And it's a lot of the Jewish culture in that time. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the, the Jews living in that time. And Maisel is a woman who, through a divorce very quickly on... Um, which is very uncommon in that time. So, like, because she's divorced, it's kind of her fault, even though he left her. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that makes her important is, like, being a wife. She ends up going into stand-up comedy. And women were not in stand-up comedy. So it's this whole story oh, of... something about Yeah, this. it's all this story of, like, money and wealth and religion in that time, as well as women and women's rights. And then, like comedy as well because also you meet other comics and what and it's like what comedy was in that time fantastic show mm-hmm. after you know 70 more days i would highly recommend <laughs> you checking it out it's really really good now that i'm counting but i think it's like 77 yeah, yeah 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 i definitely saw an ad for that or something maybe on youtube before exodus 90 yeah they just came out with the third season so that's probably why okay cool and then other stuff but i'll save it for just so i can stretch these out yeah I think I'm going to share most of the stuff that I took in right before Exodus 90 started. So, well, first off, I, I never mentioned this before, but one of the things I'm doing this year is I'm trying to read the entire Bible and Catechism in one year. So, the Coming Home Network, yeah, it's a, a network for, I think, mostly Protestants who are converting to Catholicism. Okay. Uh, but they have this whole plan where they have this reading list of what you're supposed to read each day and to read the entire catechism and Bible. So I've been trying to knock that out and it's actually been awesome. I've gotten to read every single day and like really, really read it and take the time to take notes and everything. So that's been really cool. So I've been doing that. I've been reading actual books a lot more too, because I can't watch anything or waste time on social media and stuff. So all those like free books that I get and read and then complain about because they're really bad. I read one called uh, Slave Warrior Queen by Morgan Rice. It was decent, a little weird. And then I was actually on a weird kick of the song Creep by Radiohead. Oh, so good. For a while. Yeah. And it was 
it was like a weird obsession for a little bit. Remind me when we finish this to show you the uh, choir version of that song. You can't. Uh, never mind. <laughs> so frustrating. But around that same time, I got really into some of my actually favorite musicians, but I hadn't listened to them in a while. So Callum Scott, James Arthur, and James Bay, mostly British musicians, I guess, but they have kind of a cool sound to them that I really like. And then I was on a Haley Reinhardt kick. But the one that I'm most excited to point out to you is one that I accidentally came across when I was listening to Matt Marr radio on Spotify the other day. Because we can only listen to uplifting music or music that lifts our soul to God, whatever the criteria is. So it recommended this band. It's a Christian punk rock band that does Disney covers. Oh, God. It's amazing. I mean, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, no, it, it's, it's fantastic. So they're called Stellar Cart. Okay. The lyrics on some of them are like what you'd expect from a Christian punk rock band. Some of them are decent, but... The Disney covers are really fun. Sounds like a loophole. It is. <laughs> it absolutely is. But they're Christian. So talk to my leader about this. Yeah, do it. See what happens. But no, I, I've been really enjoying it. I played some of their music, some of their Disney covers at my middle school edge night the other day. And the core members were like, is this some kind of like Christian punk rock band? This is like when I was growing up. This is amazing. And so a bunch of them were like, started following them on spotify like right there i was like nice i'm advocating that's awesome i know a lot of bands like that because of hawk oh yeah who grew up in like postcore but was also straight edge during that time so we listened to a lot of those type of bands and then would also know lead singers that would leave like secular postcore bands to start like post-rock christian bands oh yeah i see what you're saying yeah i thought you were trying to say post-christian no 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 i'm following like the genre post-rock yeah there's like pre-rock post-rock punk rock yeah yeah yeah, so that's been really fun. I was on a pretty solid kick of them a lot. That was like my workout music, because you know how we have to go to the gym. But listening to Audrey Assad in the gym is just, it like doesn't do it for me, you know? Yeah. So that's my, my gym music now. And the other thing I want to talk about this week is actually something that I was really, really dreading. And you know this. It's something we, we talked about, I think, last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. But we had several people request the Netflix movie, The Two Popes. And so, as we said, if anyone requests it, we will break our Exodus 90 fast to do some research, take in whatever you request, and and do a show on that. So, today's episode is on the movie, The Two Popes. This is going to be different than some of the other stuff we've done, because it is supposed to be Catholic to a certain extent. Obviously, it's... It's Catholic through the lens of atheists, I guess. I don't know what they actually are. Uh, they're not Catholic. That's a bold statement. Eh, well, it is. But it, it's through through the lens of non-Catholics, essentially. And so it's a little bit different than what we normally do, because part of what I did when I watched this is I did do a lot of fact-checking, just because it was hard not to. It was so blatant, some of the claims that they were making. So, so some of this will be like fact checking, but then also we want to be able to take after we've kind of torn apart, like what's true and what's false. We still want to do the Christian culture thing and find like what in this, if it's not the facts, if it's not the reality of, of what really is happening, we need to figure out like what is good about this that people really enjoy. So that's kind of what it's going to look like. So without further ado, 
we'll jump right into it. If you don't know much about this, it's basically a, a we fake... We talked about this, I think, the last episode or the episode before. This is my take on the trailer. I haven't seen the movie, and so you can, tell, you can correct me, but sure. the way I would summarize this movie is they took two characters, mm-hmm. Pope Benedict and... Well, what's his name in the movie? It's not Pope. Uh, Cardinal Berboglia. Cardinal Berboglia. <laughs> and and Pope Benedict in the lens of the director and the person who wrote the script is basically a Catholic who is... They, they took the most general versions of these characters. So they took a Catholic liberal, which would be... Yeah, they, they use a progressive Berboglia. Is in this. And then a a Catholic conservative, which would be Pope Benedict, and they had a conversation and relationship to discuss Catholic doctrine and the the issues in the church and how we should react to those, more leaning towards Babuliba, Bergoglio, yeah. That's uh, that's essentially it. So those are our two main characters. So Joseph Ratzinger, also known as Pope Benedict XVI, is played by Anthony Hopkins, who's most famous for playing Hannibal Lecter. Mm-hmm. I love Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. He's also played a priest, though. Has he? Yeah, in the right. Oh, okay. I know him from playing Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And then we have Jorge Bergoglio. He's also played Thor's father. That's true. That's another big one. Yeah. So Jorge Bergoglio also known as Pope Francis the first, if you're keeping count, played by Jonathan Price. And this one is actually, it's really funny. And you mentioned this whenever we talked about it, that they look super identical. And people wanted a movie about this ever since he came up in Game of Thrones because he plays a character in Game of Thrones where he's like essentially kind of like the high priest of a religious faction. But everyone's like, this dude looks exactly like Pope Francis. They need to make something where he plays Pope Francis. Mm. And so they made something where he plays Pope Francis. So he plays High Sparrow in Game of Thrones, and then he's uh, Governor Swan from Pirates of the Caribbean too. So mm-hmm. those Caribbean. are s- however you want to say it. Those are some some big things. So one of the things I noticed, I, I was doing a lot of fact checking, and I was like seeing a, there's a ton of articles that are going through, and like how much of this is actually real. Even Vanity Fair had one, and I was like, this is the Vanity Fair one was actually decently accurate what I was comparing with a lot of other things too. But one of the things I want to point out in this, in this movie, they take a lot of real footage and they take snippets of it and they put it in, in certain places to make it seem like it has more authority or make it look more like they're living up to exactly what happened. Okay. They kind of use it to build their authority, I guess, or trust validity. Yeah. That that what they're telling is, yeah. exactly how it was portrayed uh, it's that's their way of building relationship with the viewer exactly so there's kind of an opening scene but i want to flash right away to it flashes forward to the year 2005 in buenos aires in argentina and we have pope francis so at the time cardinal Bergoglio. well now you're gonna have me mess it up Bergoglio, <laughs> and he's preaching and talking about the story of saint francis as a piece of foreshadowing uh. Yeah. Throughout this whole movie, he references St. Francis multiple times. But the homily, so he's giving a homily. It's like an outdoor mass in the streets, basically. And he's giving this homily about St. Francis, and he's explaining the whole rebuild my church, uh, which is also foreshadowing of how he's, Pope Francis is perceived as being 
the one to come in and rebuild the church and fix it after Pope Benedict kind of messed it up. Right. At least that's the perception. So immediately after that, he is told that John Paul II died. So this is like the day of, essentially. And then we have this news anchor, newsman, whatever. He says, John Paul II's papacy, and I quote, marked a harsh condemnation of homosexuality, abortion, contraception, and the ordination of women and married men. So first off, I want to point out that John Paul II didn't teach anything that was different from the Catholic Church, which already states that First off, you should love those people mm-hmm. as people. And so it kind of, in, in small ways too, just uses like the f- phrasing of harsh condemnation rather than the fact that we disagree with it morally kind of things like that. So that's just a, a small thing. But so from the very beginning, they're kind of painting this picture of JP2 and Benedict being the extreme right. Then we go to uh, our first scene in the Vatican. And this is where I kind of lost it. So this is about four minutes in. So we have a priest who's quizzing the then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger over different cardinals who might be elected Pope, kind of like a politician who's studying his opponents, essentially. Mm-hmm. So the second one that he mentions is Cardinal Arinze of Nigeria. And Joseph Ratzinger says that people think that he may be the first African Pope. And this is something I remember people saying even when Pope Francis was elected, because there was different African popes that were considered in the top running for that too. That's not true. We've already had several popes from Africa. The first one, I actually looked it up. So the actual first one was Pope Victor I. He was the 14th pope ever. So we've had, like from the very beginning, essentially, we've had him. And there's there's other ones too. You can look them up. And it's been a while, I'll give you that. But there's there's definitely been African popes before. So... And Benedict, being theologian and historian... Probably would have known that. Would have definitely yeah. known that. So then, right after he shows that cardinal, he the priest shows him Jorge Bergoglio. And Benedict kind of just looks at it like, are you serious? Like, this guy is one of the guys that you think is going to be like a contender for me? And so the priest starts to explain like who he is because he takes it as Benedict just doesn't know who he is. And he's like... I know who he is. He's the reformer. And it kind of leaves it as that. And then we have a barrage of news stories that portray, they keep using the words reformers and conservatives, talking about each of the different candidates, reformers and conservatives. And that's those are the two words that they use okay. portrayed throughout the entire thing. So kind of like what we were saying before, we were using liberal instead of reformer, but that's that's the terminology they use. So the two of them actually meet before anything goes down for the the election of the papacy. They meet washing their hands in the restroom. And Pope Francis is whistling Dancing Queen by ABBA, uh, if you know that song. I do. Uh, I love that song. Yeah. If you think about it, this song is actually about a 17-year-old girl who's going clubbing to like pick up guys and like bounce from guy to guy. It's a little bit weird, for especially for the future pope to be whistling and hey he can listen to whatever he wants hey, to listen to i know but and you so get the song stuck in your head it's not you can't help it so ratzinger he's like oh what hymn are you whistling and so they're pa- painting him as like this complete idiot who doesn't know like culture at all and so they have this conversation and jorge bergoglio is like oh, it's it's dancing queen by abba he's like well, who's abba 
and just like all this stuff, like trying to make him look like he's really out of touch. And then they do the same thing with the Beatles later on and like soccer, which we'll get to that later. And then right after that, they're having this big meet and greet with all the Cardinals and stuff before the election. And Ratzinger comes in like a politician and greeting everyone and smiling and shaking hands and stuff. Then he looks at Bergoglio, doesn't say anything, doesn't shake his hand, walks away. And he's portrayed as like this real big jerk. And they even say like, he just ignored you. He didn't even say anything. And so this is all in the first five minutes. We have him portrayed as this completely out of touch, ultra conservative, really, really wants power and is running like a politician. And then right after that, they vote for the new Pope. I want to point out that of the entire movie, this is one of the scenes that I think is the most accurate from all the research I've done. I was actually curious a couple months ago, like what the process was as far as what they tell us happens within the Sistine Chapel for the election. And from what was portrayed in the movie, from what I've researched, they were actually pretty similar. So I'm not an expert, but it seemed pretty good. Obviously, we don't actually know the results of each election. They're not going to tell us like the numbers of how close it was, but they can splurge on that and guess. So as the Cardinals are all eating after the first vote failed, they're all talking about reform and trying to move their votes from one reformer to the other because they didn't have enough votes to stop Benedict. And so they're trying to do like this whole political thing. And Bergoglio says he doesn't want it. And the rest of them are like, that's exactly why it needs to be you, because you don't want it. And then they say, that's why Ratzinger can't be elected, because he really, really wants it. And then again, they portray him going around and politicking, shaking hands, smiling, and stuff like that. That's not true either. In fact, if, if you look it up, this whole story of the movie about Pope Francis not wanting the papacy is actually more like Benedict's story. So he actually on at least three separate occasions, tried to retire. And he was old enough to do so, but JP2 wouldn't let him because he was so important to like the doctrine of faith that he was in charge of. And then he retired early, which doesn't really seem like someone who was power hungry mm-hmm. and wanted to be in, in office. He wasn't Pope for super long or anything. So it just doesn't really seem correct, especially with him trying to retire multiple times beforehand. I'm just going to try and run through some of this stuff real quick and then we can do some themes. So eventually, obviously he's, he's elected and he walks out and he's just like celebrating like a race racer that just won. He's like got his hands up in the air and the interviews start immediately. And the first ones are very supportive of Pope Benedict and saying actually really good things about how he's going to fight relativism. He has great theology, both really true and then they get kind of negative and start talking about how he's a Nazi. And so the truth is, if, if you know anything about his past, he was forced when he was 16 years old to join the Hitler Youth right at the end of World War II. Oh, yeah. But his family was actually like very big anti-Nazi activists. But he was forced, like many other teenagers at the time, to join Hitler Youth. He was never actually a Nazi and he never fought. And so they go on saying that he needs to stop being so conservative otherwise everyone's going to leave the church so we fast forward to 2011 so six years later we have cardinal bergoglio (laughs) see now you're messing me up man. cardinal booger (laughs) cardinal bergoglio he's trying to retire he's trying to get away from this whole thing because now he knows he's one of those that are potentially going to be elected if there's ever a re-election basically 
And as he, he keeps submitting his resignation over and over and over, he's not hearing anything back from Pope Benedict. And then he gets a letter from Pope Benedict asking him to come to the Vatican for a different reason. And just something small at the airport, he refuses to let the, the driver carry his bags. He's dressed in casual clothes, not like a priest. He only wants to sit in the front seat. He doesn't want to be treated special or anything. He just wants to like talk with the people, which I think is, is really, really cool. I don't know if he does all that. I know he carries his own bag a lot, and he has that bag that he carries with him like everywhere. I don't know about the rest of that, but it does seem like a, a interesting way of like showing how he wants to be with the people, which right. is something that's really I, big. For I, Pope I do Francis. think it was. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know if that's all that's true, but I know it kind of a line. Like it's a good way to paint his personality. He was very someone who, right when he started. People were like, "You, you, you're changing the way the Pope kind of works." And he's like, "I want to do." So right after this, as he's traveling, the whole thing about Benedict's assistant who was accused of pedophilia and was sent to prison was on the news as he was traveling. And once they come together and they start talking, so they go to Castle Gandolfo, which is the summer home of the the Pope. They're having the majority of their conversations happen there. Okay. And they're sitting in the gardens and talking. And one of the very first things that Benedict says is he was talking about how great that guy was and then pope francis is like well he's in jail now and it's kind of like this awkward like do you really think he's great and when he just was like accused of being a pedophile so right after that they keep uh, benedict starts listing off all these things that bergoglio is doing to kind of stand out like things that are bad in benedict's opinion so the first one bergoglio refuses to live in the, in the palace where the rest of the cardinals stay when they visit the Vatican. And so because of that, he's like, are you trying to make the rest of us look bad and make us feel like we're being pompous and stuff like that? And then the next thing, Benedict says that Bergoglio has spoken out against himself, so Benedict, behind his back and has said a lot of things contrary to the church, specifically on homosexuality and uh, married priests. And Bergoglio denies that and is like, I've been taken out of context. Later on, he kind of recants that a little bit and actually does stand up for saying that homosexuality is something that the church needs to kind of get with and the whole married priest thing too, which the married priest thing is something, if you're familiar with church teaching, can actually change. Like priests can get married. There yeah. are married priests right now. Really it depends on the need. That's some, something that comes up later. How much of what you just said about their conversation so far, do you know validity or truth in that based on your research uh like did that exact conversation ever happen not the exact conversation did did uh Brabuglia ever talk behind so-and-so's back about certain church doctrine and all these agendas did, did all those things kind of actually happen uh, and after you answer that question i have some themes we can, i want to jump into yeah sure so i i don't think so so first off one of the things is when you retire you just send a letter you don't actually go to the person. So this conversation where they met up ahead of time and had this, like none of this actually happened. So as far as that happening, so wait, was, I'm, did I miss something? Is Pope Benedict already retiring? Or no, did no, he? No. Oh, so Bergoglio wants to retire. That's, oh, I see. So he was sending all those letters trying to retire and Benedict, he has Just to get called permission. Right, right, Benedict. Right. So that never happened. I think Pope Francis might've tried to retire possibly. Uh, I'm not sure on that, but they never met up. They never had any of these conversations. Did Pope Francis speak behind his back? I don't know. 
Okay, that's all. I was just, that was the biggest thing. I'm not saying you did know. I just know you said you've looked up multiple. Yeah, I did. So I wasn't sure if that came up. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have two things. Yep. First thing is I've kind of noticed. I don't know the themes you pulled from this. Yeah. But one of the themes that I pulled was I feel like this is one of the first movies where the theme is actually the making of the movie mm. rather than the movie and what's in the movie. And so this is one Steve would love, but I put, so first topic on the making of the movie, what is truth? And I find it fascinating that like you, you even mentioned like Vanity Fair even has like, people want to know what about this movie is truthful. And right. I think it's interesting that this movie is drawn in a secular crowd, has drawn in people even what you're talking about, like coming the coming home movement of people that are that are Protestants, but maybe be converting. It's just like everyone has kind of noticed mm-hmm. that okay, there's this movie about these two people. Okay, there's kind of this agenda. Okay, I kind of agree with the conversation going on here. Wait a minute, is this a movie, or is this true? And it's and, and I think that's huge. Yeah, because I love to that we're seeing these things because it's not something that people are just hearing and saying this is what happened. Even those that don't necessarily know about Pope Francis or Pope Benedict. And I think that's great because that's one thing that you and I talk about, like questioning and and desiring that. And so it's like, I agree with this movie, but did that actually happen? Yeah. And I think that's really, really good. I think my biggest fear with this movie and why I'm so like against it is I'm afraid that people won't do that. And so we talked about this before, and we know of people who have started participating in the church again because of this movie, and that's fantastic. But if it stops there, and there's no like research that goes behind it, if you come back to the church because of some of the things that the perceived Pope Francis in this says, you're going to be sorely disappointed when you come back and realize that the majority of what this Pope Francis says is not true. Right. And then you're going to be even more angry at the church and right. at Pope Francis. Right. So that's my fear no, is this perception. Totally. But like you're saying, there are a lot of people who are fact checking, even Vanity Fair, which is, is really big. So as long as people are doing that, I think that's great because we want truth. Right. right. We, we want to we want everyone to know the truth. That's fantastic. Even in the case of the scandal, we want people to know the truth. And I, I think that's really important. And that was my other point. The other thing I had down was basically what we do. And then just this idea, one of the things we talk about on this podcast is living your adventure. Yeah. You know, welcome to the adventure. This life is adventure, each each one of us. And we just, or you really, we just went to this thing, the adventure of discipleship. Yeah. And there's this power to storytelling. Mm-hmm. When it comes to truth, when it comes to beauty, when it comes to what is good. And when I see that in this movie, I, I, I see based on your view of it and your retelling of it so far and what I kind of assumed going into it yeah is it's just interesting because it seems like they've taken desires of their own and played them into characters that they've created for sure and used real characters real names mm-hmm. but what I think is fascinating is you can see this in scripture when Jesus was around you can see this in the gospels yeah. and the two sides you know you can see this when I forgot the one one scripture where they're privately discussing what to do with Jesus before Pontius Pilate goes out. Mm-hmm. And there's these two arguments or, or the the different ways that, that the scribes paint the picture of Jesus. 
Yeah. And essentially every time they're crucifying Jesus. Mm. The same way I feel like this director or this writer or someone is trying to crucify Pope Benedict. Yeah. Or essentially maybe even the church. Yeah. In this movie. For sure. And I don't know yeah, if you wanted weird. to add to that or just take that as, but like the same way that Tolkien or in this venture discipleship talks about telling a story mm-hmm. of, of, a, of adventure of truth and beauty. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good comparison. I definitely did not tie that with the, the scripture at all. And I also didn't realize how long I'd been talking. So <laughs> thanks for, of course, for, for cutting in there. I, I'm going to skip some stuff, but basically that can, that conversation continues. That, that's basically the big thing. And it keeps going on and on and on. And eventually, so eventually Bergoglio keeps just laughing off Benedict's comments and he won't address them. And then it gets kind of heated. And so they're sitting down and Bergoglio says, people are leaving. And Benedict is like, and that's the church's fault. It's because the church, it's not to do with relativism or the Western society or like all this different stuff. And Bergoglio says he doesn't want to be a salesman for a product that he no longer condones. And so he paints this picture of like Pope Francis doesn't believe in, in the church anymore. And that's kind of what they go through for the rest of this, this conversation. And Benedict points out, and this is actually something that comes up later. So I do want to make sure I say this. Bergoglio used to be very conservative himself. And that's actually pretty factual. And then later on in the story, he actually, one of my favorite parts, he does a flashback of Pope Francis as a, a young person before he was even a priest and then into his priesthood, early priesthood. Then he was exiled into the mountains and how all that shaped him during the Argentinian uh, dictatorship. It's really, really good. One of the best parts of the movie, in my opinion. So Benedict gets really mad, gets up, walks away. And this is where it gets even more heated. Bergoglio says priests weren't required to be celibate until the 12th century. So he's kind of going through and he's like, the church changes. Change happens all the time. That's true. That, that's a true fact. You can look it up. Priests weren't required to be celibate until the 12th century. And that's, like we said before, that's a teaching that can change. It's not a moral thing. It's more of a discipline than anything. Right. So then the next fact that he throws out, he says, angels were never even mentioned until the 5th century. That's absolutely false. It's literally in scripture all the way back to most of the Old Testament, all the way to the very beginning. And then the next one, he steps it up even more. He says, nothing is static in nature, not even God himself. And that's literally heresy, right? And Pope Francis has never said this. But I mean, we look at scripture and Jesus, he says, well, first in Hebrews, it says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today and forever. Then we have like throughout scripture, it says like God is unchanging, right? And then all of theology since has said God is unchanging. And then he goes on even more and says that confession is just a few magic words from a priest. And so that's where it gets kind of weird. So this is one of the few quotes that I want to pull up and see what we can say. So right after that, Bergoglio says, confession cleans the sinner's soul. It does not help the victim. Sin is a wound, not a stain. It needs to be treated and healed. Forgiveness is not enough. Let me say that again. Mm-hmm. Confession cleans the sinner's soul. It does not help the victim. Sin is a wound, not a stain. It needs to be treated and healed. Forgiveness is not enough. I think there's some good in that. So from the very first part, confession cleans the sinner's soul. True. It does not help the victim. Mostly true. I mean, the victim typically has no idea like that they've even repented unless unless that person has gone back and then sin is a wound not a stain we've talked about that before yeah it's something that 
a lot of the times it hurts to try and heal that wound, right? You got to yeah. clean it out. You got to disinfect it, right? It needs to be treated and healed and forgiveness is not enough. I, I get where, where he's coming from. I, th- I think in some situations, forgiveness, I think forgiveness is very powerful, but there has to be something beyond that. So I would say forgiveness and absolution. Mm-hmm. So he's saying it, it heals the soul, but not the victim. I agree. But I also think it's the only way to really heal the soul. And so it's required. Whereas the way he's talking about it is like, we should, like, it's unnecessary. Yeah. And that's right. not true. For like, sure. We, it's the only way to heal the soul. So we need that. But yes, there's different factors that go into play with the victim and our own, mm-hmm. and that's going to be guilt, which that is something we have to work through. That could be what caused the sin, which if you're using the term victim, could be something horrific and mm-hmm. something that's that takes time, community, prayer, whatever. What I love is the line, forgiveness is not enough. Because I do agree with that. And I think the hardest part with reconciliation is leaving and feeling like nothing happened. Leaving and feeling like, okay, what now? It's just going to happen again or whatever. I've had all those different types of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's because being forgiven and having having reconciliation isn't enough. It, it takes one of the three theological virtues, and that's faith. Mm-hmm. Faith in, in hope, in God. <laughs> yeah, all those things that in this sacrament and in this gift that God has given us that he's saying it's enough. Whether we feel... Whether, whether we believe it. Whether we believe, yeah. feel, or whatever, it's enough. Because it's not in our eyes, but we have to we have to cling to faith and hope and love that that it is enough for God. Yeah. So after this, we we fast forward again. This is a very small part, but Bergoglio after dinner goes into like their living room and he starts watching soccer, and then Benedict walks in and is like, "Oh, what what is this?" And like, that's another just because I'm a soccer fan, I gotta point this out. Benedict is a huge soccer fan. So is Pope Francis. They both love soccer and they've both actually spoken about how it's like the spiritual benefits of soccer and sports. So that's just a small thing. Another thing. But in this conversation, after they do that, he plays music a little bit. Benedict actually played piano, plays a lot of classical stuff. They have this this thing where Benedict says the hardest thing is to hear his voice, God's voice. And Bergoglio is like, even for a pope? And Benedict says, perhaps especially for a pope. Uh, we don't have to necessarily break that down, but I think that is very powerful. Uh, it makes Bergoglio seem like, come on, you're a cardinal. Like, you, you know. Right. But it, it does kind of show something about the struggle of clerics, right? We kind of get this idea of, like, clericalism sometimes where the, the priests and the, the bishops and the pope above sin and are above, like, spiritual desolation and stuff like that. And... That happens. Sometimes it's hard to hear God's voice. They really play off of that in here and make it later on. It says like Benedict hasn't heard God's voice in a really long time. And that's why his papacy is going to crap. Basically, that's not true. But are there going to be times where he doesn't hear God's voice? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Everyone. There's some great saints who that's happened to them. Yeah. So right after this, this is where we eventually they they go back to the Vatican because something goes down where more stuff is released on the scandal, essentially. So they go back to the Vatican. And while they're back, they go to the Sistine Chapel, they sit down and they have this heart-to-heart, basically. And this is where they start to become friends. And Bergoglio tells a story 
about how he was in love and how he was about to propose. And on his way to propose, he stopped in the in the church randomly and everything changed from there. That's fake too. So the whole love story and the proposal was based off of a letter that he wrote to his crush when he was 12 years old. Oh. So based off a real person, but they were 12. Right. And it definitely not engaged. But I'm not going to go into it for the sake of time, but they go into this. It's really interesting. He kind of talks about his background, how he became Jesuit and all that stuff, and how by the age of 36, he was the leader of all the Jesuits in Argentina. And then he gets into all this trouble because that's when the military takeover in Argentina was, and he's in charge of all the Jesuits. They're killing people. And so he like essentially makes this deal with the military leaders where he's working with them but it protects his priests and they find out the priests find out and they're like, we're not backing down. We have to do what Jesus wants us to do. And Bergoglio says like, this is one of the greatest sins of my life. And I've never forgiven myself for this because hmm. he essentially betrayed his people and all of the priests and his best friends ended up getting killed because they stood up for what they believed in. And right after that, once the military was kicked out, he was exiled. The Jesuits sent him into the mountains and that's where he, his conversion happened. And all of a sudden he became the reformer and no longer the conservative. He spent basically his entire days just listening to confessions. And because of that, it led him to become a man of the people, I guess. So that's essentially what would that looked like. Throughout this whole thing, Pope Benedict keeps ignoring Bergoglio's attempt to retire. Once they're in the Sistine Chapel, Bergoglio is looking around and he starts talking about some of the things that he would do as Pope. And Benedict's like, no, keep going. Like, tell me what you would do. And after he's done, Benedict says, I'm going to resign from the papacy. And basically implies, like, I'm going to let you be Pope. Bergoglio gets mad, and they kind of have this argument. This is useless, and I might cut this out later. But my favorite part in the entire movie, probably was this stupid joke that Benedict made because this whole time Pope Francis is funny. Like he's making jokes and like they have punchlines, but Benedict never gets them because they're right. references. And Benedict tries to make a joke in this moment as Pope or as uh, Bergoglio is kind of like panicking. And it's not funny at all, but he straight face says, it's a German joke. It doesn't have to be funny. <laughs> oh, I literally lost it. So good. Gosh, I have a weird humor. But in this conversation, this is one of the really big lines. Benedict says, God always corrects one pope by presenting another. I would like to see my correction. All of the articles that I've read about this, everyone sees this as implying that he is admitting that he messed up the papacy uh, and, and the church and that he is like intentionally planning Pope Francis to come in as the, the remedy for that. Right. Again, not factual. There's no way that he could even do that if he wanted to, like, plan all that and or orchestrate that. And then right after that, he says, I don't agree with any, well, most of the things you say, think, or do. But for some reason, now I can see a necessity for Bergoglio. And so this is like the kind of change of heart moment, I guess, where all of a sudden this hard, angry conservative has agreed that it's time for change. Uh, and he actually says that. He's like, it's time for change later on. So the next big thing is after Bergoglio confesses that whole story about his biggest sin, then Benedict asks him to hear his confession. And it cuts out 
and it's like you're underwater so that you don't hear the whole conversation. But the last thing you hear is he mentions a name and he says, do you remember, insert the name of the priest here. I don't remember the actual name, but it's a real name of a priest who Benedict was accused of covering up his involvement in a a pedophilia scandal. And it's basically him confessing to covering up the whole thing. This was already disproven in real life. The whole thing took place during JP2's time as Pope. And as soon as Benedict became the Pope, he's the one that actually took action against the guy. So again, not, not founded whatsoever. I've already talked about how Benedict right at this moment says that he's resigning because he prays to God, but he never hears his voice. Obviously, that's not why. He was old. He was tired. He never wanted it to begin with. All, all he ever wanted to do, and he this is why he tried to retire multiple times, he wanted to go back to Germany, pray, and write theology. That's all he ever wanted to do. And then the last couple of things I want to point out before we can jump into the final themes. He retires. We have Cardinal Bergoglio elected Pope Francis, and the famous line, the carnival is over. I don't know if you remember that when he was elected. That was like uh, something all the newspapers said that he said. I looked it up. The guy who was actually there that he supposedly said it to said it was never actually a thing. So that's Monsignor Guido Marini. He said the actual words that he was told was, I prefer not to wear that. Hmm. So it not not that it's a huge difference, but comparing like all the smells and bells to a carnival or a circus right. versus just saying, I prefer to not do that. Yeah. It, it has a huge, I guess, connotation with it. And then one of the most beautiful parts of the whole thing is soon as he's elected, he walks out to greet everyone. And the first thing he does is he prays with them for Pope Emeritus Benedict. And that was really cool to see. Like that's kind of not how it ended. There was some stuff after that, but that's basically the end of the actual like context of the whole thing. So one of the major themes that I wanted to point out is what people love about Pope Francis is that he's at least portrayed as very real and very caring towards people. And I think that's, I think that's very real about the person of who Pope Francis is. He wants to be among the people. He's always had his thing about smelling like the sheep. So I think that's the first thing I want to talk about. And in this movie, especially He's trying to get rid of everything except for the roots of the faith, going back to like serving the poor and getting rid of any like, I don't want to say any organized religion, but it kind of seems like it. Yeah. Just getting down to like the apostles walking through and performing miracles, healing and stuff like that. So I just want to talk about like his personality and the way that he approaches people. So any thoughts on that? Uh, Not particularly. I mean, I guess the biggest thing, the only thing that I really wrote down was like, this movie seems like another dialogue of the church versus politics. Yeah. And that like at this time. And church politics. Right. But at this time, it seems like the church works the same way that politics and politicians do. And like almost like the house does look like the election for the new pope runs the same way as like electing a new yeah. head of the house or head of all those things and it's not to say there isn't politics behind it like you said there are church politics but Absolutely. it's not the same and so i think with what you're what you're saying here besides this his true personality being shown in this movie is also it almost seems like this his dialogue is to eradicate the politics in the church yeah. so it gets back to what is real yeah yeah and to be fair they're in the past 
the politics of the church have definitely been just as bad, if not worse, than the politics of like the governments. Yeah. Thing, especially like the Renaissance area papacy stuff got really bad then. And so, I mean, I don't know. I've I'm not in the College of Cardinals. Me neither. It could be yeah. that bad. I don't know. I I would hope that it's not quite as bad as people portray it as Uh, i know we do have some very good cardinals that are kind of like thrown under the bus with some of them that are sometimes not as good but i i I do think the realness of pope francis is something that's really attractive and i think that's one of the things about this movie that people really enjoy because people love someone who's real and that's approachable and that they feel like i mean you look at pope Pope francis he's adorable yeah he's like the adorable old, old, old old man so the next thing we actually had several teens that reached out to me who requested this. Uh, my teen teens from my youth group. And I texted them earlier and I was like, what about this specifically was something that drew you into the movie that you really enjoyed? Because they did express that even with all the like things that were factually inaccurate, they still enjoyed it. So I, I just want to get like their perspective because I don't want to be su- right. super biased, you know? And so one of them said the the holy friendship essentially that developed was between the two of them and so you see after especially after the announcement of his resignation they really start to bond and by the end of the movie the very last scene as the credits are rolling is the two of them watching the world cup game together argentina versus germany in the finals <laughs> and they're both loving it right and obviously that never happened but it's it's adorable it's like this great friendship that most likely was not a thing, but most of us who are soccer fans and Catholics at that time during that game were like, what if they're watching this right now? And so it's kind of cool to see that happen. But the whole point is like this friendship between the two of them. And I think there's something about authentic friendship that is really attractive to us as human beings. So I don't know if you want to speak to that. Yeah, I think this goes hand in hand with what we're doing right now. With Exodus. Yeah, for sure. Uh, One of the three pillars, and there's three, is fraternity. And I know that's like a male word, but same with women. Like there is this, there's something like we're called to do it once a week, if not more. And then we see there's something about even though there are differences within two people, even though there are completely different views, completely different Mm -hmm. takes, even in the spiritual life, which is actually extremely common too nowadays in Christianity and Catholicism and all these things. If it takes real, honest dialogue and real, honest response to what you're hearing, first, like, listening, but hearing in order, like, you know, Pope Francis, while he was cardinal, wanted to resign. And I was like, no, because you're actually good. And then vice versa. And all these things of, like, lifting each other up while calling them out. Yeah, that's exactly what I had in my notes. And, and, and there's this realm of... And you see this movie because it's, I'm sure it's like an hour and 50 minutes long of persistence in that. Like not only just like, oh, I tried. No, like relentless persistence in in this dialogue Mm -hmm. that by the end they're like, you know, like, you know everything about me. It's literally Pope Benedict who, I mean, maybe it didn't happen, but like confessed. Right. So like all these things, you know everything about me. I've, I've, I'm stripped everything. So I'm naked with you now. Like I'm that vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So all I have left is to love and be friends with you. Right. Yeah. And there's something about like 
in the last several scenes, it seems like a very authentic joy that they share together, which is really cool. There's one scene where they have the security guard go out and order pizza and sodas from this middle of nowhere shop and they sit and eat pizza together and they're just joking and, and eating. And it, it's just this adorable couple of old guys. It almost looks like it's like grumpy old men. Like the, like except movie. they're joyful. Right. Instead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and even when they pretended to not listen to each other, specifically Benedict to Ergoglio, you find out later he was listening the whole time. It just wasn't time for him to respond yet because he couldn't say too early that he was resigning. He had to wait until the right moment. And so he was listening the whole time. And so that's another thing. Even when they pretended like they weren't having this friendly conversation, Benedict knew this was happening. He just was waiting for the right time. And that's the part about those kind of relationships. It's in this realm of disagreement and different mindset that you still respect the other person and what they're saying. You don't reject it altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think, I mean, just just not even in friendship or relationships, but that's just where I think the issue with dialogue today has gone wrong. As soon as someone says something we disagree with, we just stop listening. Yeah. Even if, because we don't want to respond or because we, we're just like, nope. And I mean, you watch this whole movie. Mm-hmm. Even though, so... <laughs> Yeah, even though, uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't a huge fan, but that's the whole point. Like, we're trying to find the good things with within that, right? And I'll admit, like, I really struggled because I was, I got a little flustered over like some of the very blatant kind of shots at the church. But as I sat down and started thinking about it, I'm like, there's there's good stuff in here, and there were some scenes, like I said, that I really enjoyed and that I yeah. burst out laughing to. So one of the next things that one of, one of my teens pointed out was the background story of Bergoglio in Argentina. I didn't get to go into detail with that, but it's really cool to see the psychological change of like his, his past. And I don't know much about that time period, to be completely honest, of, of Pope Francis. But from the little research I did in the last couple of days, it actually seems, uh, maybe not the details, but the, the general story seems pretty accurate. Of, of what happened. And I think one of the things that's, that's attractive about this is the vulnerability of the Pope and both of them sharing, I messed up and I messed up in a really, really big way. And I hurt and I'm really, really hurting. And there's one point where they just like hug it out and they, they tango together, you know? And it's this idea that like kind of the, the St. Peter thing where St. Peter was one of the most venerated saints in the early church not because he was the first pope although that was a big thing but because he messed up and came back in most of early christian art when peter was shown or displayed in the art they showed him as a rooster as like a kind of a not a slap in the face but a reminder of if he can mess up and be pope then what do we have to do to right. not be forgiven? And so I think there's something with that too in, in these last couple of scenes where they're pouring their heart out in their biggest sins. True or not, I don't know. Right. Or one of the things that I kind of had an issue with that is when Benedict said his sin, Pope Francis uh, or Bergoglio kind of freaks out and like almost doesn't absolve him. And I, for, for a moment, like I, I get it because it, it's, it's still happening and it's still a deep cut. But at the same time, why do we see one sin is forgivable and the other not? Because of Bergoglio's action, literally hundreds, if not thousands of people were killed, right? And that's pretty significant. I'm not saying that 
this pedophilia thing is not significant at all. Like I think it is, but why is one forgivable and the other not? I just think that's something to kind of ponder because eventually he does give absolution. But I think a lot of the times in our mindset and myself included, like when I was watching it, I was like, I kind of dismissed the fact that hundreds, if not thousands of people died because of his actions because it had happened 50 years ago. Yeah. When we say anything is unforgivable, the best way to explain the issue with that without like making anybody feel uncomfortable or mad or anything is that knowing that forgiveness comes from God. Mm -hmm. And when we say something definite like that, then we're putting limitations on what God is and God's forgiveness. And we can't do that. Yeah. I mean, the only sin that scripture tells us is unforgivable is uh, blasphemy against the spirit, which literally means like believing the spirit can't forgive you. Right. (laughs) So one of the next things, and actually the last thing that one of my, teens told me is one of the big things they really enjoyed is the very fact that Netflix is taking interest in the Catholic world. Even if it's not necessarily an accurate portrayal, they see it kind of as man's innate draw to religion uh, or fascination with, with that, even if it's not fairly portrayed. You seem kind of iffy on that. Yeah. No, I mean, the more I think about it, the more I can agree with that. I, I, I Like I said, I haven't seen this movie. I thought it was cool too. When I first saw it, I was like, huh. And then you saw the trailer and you're like, oh. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I think it's a tool for Netflix or whoever, not even Netflix, because I, I know how Netflix now makes things, having heard how Scorsese made The Irishman. Mm-hmm. They just kind of like walk in and like, here, do whatever you want. And they leave. And so I think it's it's a tool for whoever made the film to have this dialogue of, of their own. But it is cool because this person did want to have dialogue about church doctrine. Yeah. It is something that in this way isn't being discussed. And like it wasn't a complete just like the movie started and then, you know, things happen. And then by the end, they're like, oh, the church is wrong. This is what the church believes. This is what is true. Blah, 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 blah. And like totally it was rather this conversation with these two people that are in the church living this faith and the one person or either person like whether one person's painted bad and the other person's painting good, the person that's essentially portrayed as the good guy with proper beliefs is of the church. Mm-hmm. And so it's like maybe a lose win in, in that way, but it, it is cool in those ways. Like it is cool because it's a, it's, it's a, it's a Christian dialogue, but I, but I also disagree a little bit because I think it was just more of like a tool for the, for, oh, for for the sure. person telling a story. For sure. And it, yeah. this is definitely like getting back to like the very root of it where yeah. like we're still, the very fact that it's being used as a tool shows that yeah. it's, it's still something that's on our hearts. And what, what you said actually leads into what I want the last point to be. And this is something that I found when I was reading an interview that was done by someone actually not related to the movie at all, I don't think. His name is Chris Donahue. He's a, a Oscar-winning filmmaker. And I, I looked it up. He actually studied at Jesuit Prep in Dallas, which is okay. one of the schools that used to send kids to the Pines, I think. So I might have worked with kids from that school but what he said is apparently he's calling it a comedy and not in the like ha 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 no but like a shakespeare way right yeah and so this is this is what he said the great thing about the film is not that it's a theological treatise but the story of hope and an unlikely friendship then he goes on to compare it to a modern divine comedy Mm -hmm. where each pope experiences their own inferno Purgatorio and Paradiso. And so it's this kind of conversion of experiencing themselves at, at their worst 
where you have those flashbacks and then you have this transformation process where even though the paradiso is a little bit like skewed to one biased perspective, you still see that transformation of the divine comedy by Dante. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's going off of what you said where it's, it's not supposed to be a theological treatise. It's supposed to be a story about two friends finding hope in this relationship. Yeah. With that, we'll go into some challenges. The first one I think is easy. Have a dialogue with someone of a different belief than you. I think that has to be in there somewhere. I, I would specify when you say different belief than you, it does not be like religious belief. Well, yeah. when I say religious, I mean like of another religion. Mm-hmm. If there's someone you know that you're like, this person, we're in the same religion and they're a hypocrite. Well, go talk up like strike up a conversation sure. about something that you're like why do you think this or why do you do this if this or politics i'm the worst at wanting to talk i like and i don't i don't want to talk about politics yeah. is what i mean yeah and so maybe just some some tips with that is listen yeah don't, don't get angry if you if you catch yourself getting angry don't talk just listen and in those situations sometimes it's best to just ask questions like okay wh- why do you think that and not say like why do you think that why and and try to understand where they're coming from and not only is that beneficial to the relationship because it lets the person feel heard but it also helps you understand that person's perspective and even if it's a little selfishly in the future if you ever want to defend your own perspective if they don't change your mind that is if they don't change your mind theoretically you should be able to strongman the other person's argument which is when you take someone else's argument give it the best perspective or best argument possible and then refute that. So if your opinion actually is correct, then you should be able to give the best argument for the, for the other person. So make sure you're listening and, and being calm. One reason I don't like talking about politics is because I don't know enough or if mm-hmm. anything. And so I know another thing with that challenge is like, well, I don't know enough about church doctrine. I don't know this, this. I think striking a conversation like that with someone isn't to have a debate or isn't to respond like literally if they want to start asking you questions you're like honestly i don't you can literally say i don't know enough to talk about this i was just curious because i know i think or believe or feel differently and i just wanted to know where you got what you know and all these things i'm actually going to go home and look this up because this is interesting Mm -hmm. and then you go home whether you got angry or disagreed with ever let that out on your own and then look stuff up based on what they said and and just be like, okay, you know, I'm learning. And and then it either furthers your belief of why you, and now you're getting reasons to now talk to other people about, or you can go back and be like, hey, look this up. And uh, look, I found this, which is kind of more in line with what I believe. What do you think? I feel like you're describing my relationship with this movie right now, where I didn't agree. I took two hours and five minutes and I listened to what he had to say. I did my research, like, I actually had fun with that too. So that's another good thing that came out of this is I actually had to go do digging. I learned more about Pope Francis than I didn't know before. And now we're having that dialogue because of that. Yeah. So a weird way of looking at that. But do you have any other challenges? No. Okay. Then shout outs. I want to shout out Gracie and Ty uh, and all the other team leaders from the Monday Bible study who suggested this, but especially Gracie and Ty because they were the ones who helped give me some some feedback. Yeah. And yes, it is the Ty. <laughs> The tie. The tie. I don't really have any major shout outs. Oh, I had someone that came to mind though. Was it Austin? Austin. Yeah. He just, today he mentioned, because he was like, what are you guys talking about? Or do I have to wait till it comes out? And I don't know if he actually listens, but 
he does by that comment i was like oh he listens that's so nice yeah i was totally trying to bait him this morning so he's one of the members so i'm gonna drop that shout out and we won't say anything unless he he listens (laughs) there you go it's a test thank you guys so much for staying with us and hopefully you guys enjoyed this there's a lot to this i encourage you to go if if you're gonna watch it do some research if you're not gonna do research I would suggest probably not watching it because it can be misleading. Uh, But that's up to you. I'll let you make your own decisions. With that, thank you guys so much for joining us in the adventure this week. Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media, Facebook, The Christ and Culture, YouTube, The Christ and Culture, Twitter, at OnTheAdventure2. You can also, if you like what we do, support us on Patreon for as little as $5 a month or less. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can become a patron. And in return, we give you bonus content we give stickers we have like mugs and stuff like that all these different things we want to be able to give you guys we have videos uh this week we're going to be doing a a live stream with the patrons where we Mm -hmm. hang out and talk to them about different stuff and how we continue this conversation outside of the podcast if you want involved in stuff like that please consider supporting us at patreon.com backslash the christ and culture and don't forget to check out all this stuff at our website thechristandculture.com with that Thank you guys for joining us on the adventure. We'll see you next week. Bye.